There were two processions into Jerusalem this very week, more than 2,000 years ago. Both were led by men claiming authority, royal authority, total authority. The first is the one described in our gospel reading that we read outside. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, an unbroken donkey no one had ever ridden before, accompanied by his disciples, more than just the 12 we usually think of, but thousands of disciples, thousands of Galileans who had accompanied him on his journey. For at least a week, they'd been walking together. They'd seen Jesus perform miracles. A blind man had called him the son of David, and Jesus accepted that title and gave the man his sight. They're convinced something is on the way, and um, of course, more about this later. The other procession under royal authority, if not a royal procession itself, was, was of someone representing royal authority. And that was Pontius Pilate arriving in Jerusalem. We aren't told of his arrival in scripture, and I'm not claiming that the two arrivals occurred at the same time, but certainly within a few days of each other, because the Bible tells us very clearly that Pilate was in Jerusalem during this holy week, and Pilate did not live in Jerusalem. Why would he? He had no desire to make a permanent residence in this Jewish city. I mean, why would he when there was a perfectly good Roman city not far away? We know from historical sources that Pilate made his home in the city of Caesarea Maritima. Maritime Caesarea, literally a city on the sea dedicated to Caesar, the emperor of Rome. It had been built by Herod the Great. Construction started just a year after the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, had become ruler of Rome. And Herod named it after his new best friend. It was less than 60 years old at the time of, of our story this morning. In the ancient world, that's a brand new city. The oldest building was only about 10 years older than this building. It was the Roman capital of all Judea, the Roman capital of a Roman province, and therefore the home of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. While the Jewish people looked at Jerusalem as their holy city, the Romans looked at it as a dump, a dingy, foreign town to their eyes. But only 50 miles away was Caesarea, a two-day march by Roman standards. I've been there. I arrived on a bus. I didn't march there. There was a man-made harbor there, which people at the time said was larger than Cleopatra's uh, harbor at uh, Alexandria. The engineering itself was a huge accomplishment, dumping hundreds of thousands of tons of limestone into the ocean of the Mediterranean Sea to create a safe harbor for boats directly on the Mediterranean Sea. There was a hippodrome that was an arena for huge horse chariot races. Think of Ben-Hur. It was also a scene for gladi gladiator games. Think of, well, any gladiator movie. At its height, in one year, 2,500 Jewish prisoners were killed in those gladiator games. That's 50 a week. There was also a theater there for plays about the gods and the way they torment us humans. It was a Roman city and a Roman kind of place. The gods are above us and they're brutal to us, so we are brutal to those who are under us. And we can leave the world of historical documents and stone markers and go to our imagination for a minute. 
It's not hard to imagine why Pilate has left the pleasures of Caesarea for the dumpy, dingy, foreign, to his eyes at least, city of Jerusalem. It's Passover. The Jews are gathering to celebrate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, and Jews get a little rowdy at Passover. And maybe some of them will be thinking about seeking deliverance from their oppression by Rome. The historian Josephus tells us that about four years before Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, what we celebrated this morning, a group of Jewish protesters had traveled all the way from Jerusalem to Caesarea Maritima to protest uh, outside of uh, Pilate's palace because Pilate had suggested placing some Roman imperial symbols on the Temple Mound itself. Perhaps Pilate thinks to himself that maybe he'd better be on the scene in Jerusalem this Passover, just in case some rabble showed up claiming that their precious Messiah had suddenly shown up. And I won't push our collective imagination any more than to suggest that when Pilate enters Jerusalem, he's not riding a donkey with a ragtag bunch of followers. He's on a majestic horse at the front of a significant number of Roman soldiers. Perhaps, he thought to himself, you Jews are celebrating the deliverance your God gave you from the Egyptians hundreds of years ago. Well, guess what? Today, the Romans control both the Egyptians and you. We don't know if he thought that, of course, but it would be, certainly be accurate. However he arrived, or whatever he thought, it's impossible to imagine it anyway, but as a way that projected arrogance and power. It's a very different picture from Jesus, arriving on a donkey, leading a mob, a huge crowd of followers. Again, they've been with him all along this journey from Galilee in the north, across the Jordan River, down to Jericho, and then back up to Jerusalem. Again, along the way, they'd witnessed miracles. Jesus claimed to be the son of David, and they're excited. He's taken on to himself the title of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one who would bring salvation to the nation, salvation to the Jews. All along, Luke has told us that Jesus has turned his face towards Jerusalem. He's focused on going to Jerusalem, and the crowd he leads is excited because they're getting close to Jerusalem. What will happen? Will this be the confrontation with Rome? And then Jesus sends ahead for a donkey colt, an unbroken donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Jesus chose a young donkey, which is ridiculous at first, because donkeys are ridiculous. I should know. My wife and I own three of them. All boys fully intact. If you don't know what that means, ask your mom and dad. They're boisterous, and they've never been ridden. You know, I was thinking we would bring one up, and uh, I had my wife bring him in, and Leanne would stand in the back with him, and then I'd have all of you crowd around the, the pew and start waving palms <laughs> and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna! And then I would hop on the back of the donkey and show you how Jesus did it. You'd have to come up with some ladders to get me down from the chandeliers. But that's part, that's part of what's going on here. Jesus is showing his power over nature. That he controls the will of this boisterous donkey. Why is he riding a donkey? Because he's coming in peace. In the ancient Mediterranean world, that's the symbol that the king is coming in peace. King Solomon, after this short civil war, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
not a war horse because he's saying, you're, you've, you're in submission to me, I come in peace. I don't need to fight because you've submitted yourself to me. It's very deliberate that he chooses this donkey, copying Solomon but also fulfilling scripture. Zechariah chapter 9, this is a Hebrew prophet. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And surely some of these disciples remembered that scripture. They remembered the story of Solomon riding in on a donkey. They remembered this prophecy this prophecy about the one who was the Messiah, that title that Jesus had accepted as belonging to him. This must be the king who will establish his kingdom, they say. And Jesus was, but not in the way they expect. He is the king. He is establishing his kingdom, but not in the way they expect. He's coming to rule, and he's coming to save, but not by taking power and killing, but by losing power and dying. He's going to triumph through weakness. And therefore, his followers can triumph through weakness. They can only come to salvation by being weak and repenting and admitting their needs. We're not saved by our good works. Our strong savior who says, do good works and be like me. Jesus sets an example for us, but it's an example we can't meet. We need a strong savior, but we can't identify with a strong savior because a lot of people aren't strong. I'm not strong. And that's why Jesus offers salvation through weakness so that people can have a free salvation in spite of our sins. Well, it must have been startling for the city of Jerusalem to watch this mob coming in following a man on a donkey. His disciples, Jesus is very careful to tell us this is a multitude of his disciples, that's the word that he uses, lined the pathway with robes and they waved palm fronds to welcome him into the city as the new conquering hero. Perhaps this man would bring a permanent restoration of the nation and restore Israel to its glory. And we know what will happen. Jesus will spend three days in Jerusalem doing all kinds of things, overturning the money changers' table in the temple, teaching in the temple. And then, of course, we know he's betrayed. And another crowd gathers and calls, crucify him. Often we are told, and I've been told this often, that the same people who said, Hosanna in the highest, shout, crucify him. Well, that will certainly preach, but it's not quite accurate. Luke is careful to tell us that this is a crowd of Jesus' disciples coming into the Jerusalem who shout Hosanna and welcome Jesus to the city. He's also very careful to summarize the crowd shouting crucify him. Their complaint in Luke 23, we, we read it this morning, is he stirs up the people all over Judea, that's this area around Jerusalem, by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine that a lot of disappointed Galileans, seeing Jesus betrayed, standing before them in the power of Rome, also cried out, crucify him, crucify him. 
the main point remains the same. Surely some who had followed Jesus all that way from Galilee joined that crowd and shouting, crucify him. His closest disciples certainly didn't join it, but his closest disciples, on the other hand, had run away. Peter didn't join the crowd shouting, crucify him, but he denied him, denied that he even knew Jesus. This man, this Jesus who rode the donkey, wasn't the Messiah they expected after all. He'd let them down. He hadn't been the king they expected, so crucify him. He didn't meet their expectations. Isn't it true? Often we go to God and say, you need to give me exactly what I need from you. Well, that's what these people have done. And what do these people think they needed from God? They needed God to bring judgment down on the people they thought were ruining the world, the Romans. What they really needed was someone to come down and bear judgment for them because they were ruining the world. Because everybody is ruining the world. You and I are ruining the world. We're part of the story of the fall. And what they really needed was pardon and reconciliation. The people wanted a powerful, strong, victorious king, but they got a humble, weak, and dying king. But as we'll see by the end of this week, this humble, weak, and dying king will be raised by God the Father to be the powerful, strong, and victorious king who conquers not the Roman Empire, but who conquers sin and death itself. He wasn't the king they wanted, but he was the king they needed. And we can't pick and choose what parts of Jesus we will accept. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. Pastor Tim Keller says this, we must either accept Jesus or reject Jesus, but we can't like Jesus. He won't be liked. We either accept him or we reject him. Another Bible teacher, not so famous, but sometimes the not so famous ones are the best kinds, a woman named Barbara Boyd. She wrote Bible studies for university for decades. And she often said something along these line, this line in her, in her teaching. She, said, she would say, my name is Barbara Boyd. And if you invite me to your house and I show up on your front porch and you say, Barbara, come in, Boyd, stay outside, it doesn't work. And she went on to say, we can't accept the Lord Jesus into our lives and say, Jesus, come into my life, but Lord, stay out of my life. You can't say, I want Jesus the healer, but not Jesus the king. I want Jesus to save me, but not to guide me. It won't work. Either the Lord Jesus is the Lord Jesus, or he's not worth bothering with. I mean, I've said it before, if you just want some good moral teachings that you will be respected in your community and your workplace, become a Sikh. Get to wear a cool hat. You know why they wear the hat? The men wear the hat? They have a teaching about the, the hair showing the, the gifts of God's growing in their lives, but they also will tell you, because I want you to know that if you see a man with a turban, you know that's a man you can go to if you need trouble, because he will help you. I mean, if you just want a good moral teaching to be respected in the community, do that. We've had a lot of great moral teachers. Pick one. And your life will go more smoothly if you follow a good moral teacher. But if you want to be delivered from sin and death, you must choose Jesus. And you can't pick and choose which parts to accept. He's all or nothing. Now this Sunday morning, as we do every Sunday morning, we'll recapture and recapitulate and recall and remember 
this holy week. In our communion service, we follow the pattern of Holy Week. We start off by remembering Palm Sunday. We will all say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. We move on to remember the night on which he was betrayed. We remember his death and glorious resurrection. We even skip ahead 40 days and remember his glorious ascension. And as we do so, as we walk through all of Holy Week in just a few minutes, I encourage you to either remember or make it the first time that you recognize Jesus as your king, the king that you need, the king who defeated sin and death, your sin and death, and not yours only, but the sin and death of the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen.